Welcome to Sweden in Transition, the podcast that meets change makers in Sweden. I take the opportunity of this first podcast of 2020 to wish you all a vibrant year full of discovery and harmony. I also want to thank you for listening. If you like the podcast, the best thing to support it is to leave a five-star rating and write a little comment on iTunes, for example, so more people can discover it. I am Sonia Lehmann and today I meet Cindy Falke. Cindy is part of the Green Party office at the Stockholm City Hall and we will discuss various issues such as climate action plans, gender equality and minorities. Hi Cindy, welcome. Hi Sonia, thank you. Can you tell us about you and why did you join the Green Party? It's about me. I'm 32 years old. I was born and raised in France. I'm in Sweden since 2010. I've been voting Green since I'm 18, I think. Uh, I think it was just after 2015 crisis in Syria and the refugees started to come to Europe. Back then I was working at the French embassy here in Sweden and I loved the job. It was fantastic, but I felt the urge <laughs> not to just like report and I just wanted to be a part of the action. Yeah, that was really simple. They were like announcing and recruiting people at the City Hall at the Green Party. And I just felt that it was the right time, the right place. I, yeah, that's how the story started. So I'm a political advisor to uh, Katarina Lur, who's the vice mayor for climate and environment here at the City Hall. My job is to both develop policies, but also try to make them turn into reality. And it's two very different jobs. It's both like strategic, but also very concrete try to make it into the new budget for the city and then make sure that it's understood and applied. Meeting the civil society, talking to people, to the people that are voting for us, but also to, of course, people living in the city. So it's very, it has a huge range of different tasks that you have to do, which makes it fantastic, to me at least. <laughs> Great. If yeah. we come back to the introduction of yeah. uh, the podcast, we say the world needs reinvention. Mm -hmm. What do you think when you hear that? What do you put behind this? So many different things. Of course it does. If you look at the world today, there are tons of people who still have not access to basic rights and needs, especially women and, and children. So that's one big part of the problem. But also on the other part, you've got a very little amount of people at a global scale that really use too much, way too much resources and do threaten the future of the whole humanity. So we really have to change the, the whole paradigm if we want the world to A, continue existing and B, being a, a more fair world. So we have to really change so many models and so many philosophies somehow. Interestingly, when you describe what you think is the problem, social inequalities and environmental impact are two sides of the same coin. We have a planet that has a limited amount of resources and they should be, of course, accessible to everyone. Can you explain to us the different files you're working on? The climate aspect, of course, is um, really integrated in everything that we're doing. But my main focus is not on climate, it's on uh, environment part. So with the water and air quality, chemicals and plastic, which is an aspect of the environmental work. But I also work with the biodiversity and with everything that's connected to Agenda 2030 and national minorities at the local level. Again, because we are, we're still talking about Stockholm uh, as a municipality. Let's start with climate, because the Nordic countries are always taken as an example. 
The Nordics are always pointed out as examples and, and Sweden, I would say, mainly. What Stockholm has done or is doing right now is also inframed, if you wish, by what's done at the national level. And since 2018, we have the Beautiful Climate Act. So the global goal for Sweden is that by 2045, we have zero net emission, which is a great goal. And <laughs> the act also says that we have to pass every fourth year a new climate action plan. Every government, whatever it is composed of, has to pass a new climate action plan that is compatible with the climate goals. And so basically Stockholm has been trying to be even more ambitious because we really do think that municipalities are in contact with the population that a great job can be done at the local level. So here we are actually, we worked this year on our uh, CO2 budget to be uh, fossil free by 2030. So what we are trying to do basically is also what the government announced that they would be doing. Um, the core idea is to integrate climate perspective in every field of uh, politics. And that's basically what, what the city has been doing too. We are working on this budget that says that we have this amount of CO2 to be spent by 2030. And we have to reduce, of course, the amount of tons per inhabitant per year. And then we have to be very concrete. And that's the problem because at the national level, it, you can't be more concrete than just big goals and big dates and stuff like that. But we are municipalities. So we have so, so many employees. We have a bit more than 45,000 employees. And we are meeting Stockholmers every day at school, at um, elderly care. So for us, it's really like, how do we make sure that this is happening? What kind of transportation do we use? What kind of food do we serve? What we are working now on right now is really to have a better picture over what every service or everything that we are buying has for CO2 impact for footprint. And this is huge, of course. The main challenge is that many divisions that are not primarily working with the climate issue now have to start to think like that too. So we are really trying to work in a systematic way to make sure that they don't have to themselves be specialists in order to take the good decisions. For example, to focus on the plastic, to make sure that we ban that kind of product. And we, we started, like, for instance, we decided that we are not buying any plastic bottle for water when we have a water that has such a good quality. Your role is to push for change. Yeah. So if the solution doesn't exist, you try to set up a, a way to make it happen. Yeah, exactly. And we actually have something that's great. That's a very good platform to come into contact with the private sector. That's called Climate Pact, like the Climate Pact, basically for enterprises to want to support the city. It, it just helps us to understand the system fails also. What are we doing that's not smart? So they really help us to identify the issues. They are so committed and willing to find solutions. So that's one concrete way to basically take more responsibility. Because as a city, there are things that we can do and things that we can't really address. One big problem when it comes to climate footprint is that we can't regulate consumption. We're just controlling what is served in the schools, for instance, but not what you as a person choose to buy for your own meals at home and stuff. Why do you think uh, Sweden deserves this gold medal for environment? <laughs> I think there is a huge awareness, politically at least. The Green Party has been active since 30 years back. I think they've been doing a great opinion building. The civil society is fantastic. It's really present. It's been Natikhus Frianningen, VVF. The opinion building part has been really successful, I think. So people are aware 
Also, the country has a fantastic growth and economic wealth. So I think it's also a bit like the Maslow's pyramid. We're rich enough to care somehow. And where do you think there really needs to be an acceleration? I would say overconsumption. Basically, if the whole planet was behaving the way we do, having the same lifestyle, having cars and pools and houses and electricity everywhere, we would need 4.5 Earth to sustain all that conception. So basically, we are... We're quite a small country. Uh, we're 10 million people, but we are, we have such a huge and high consumption level that we are requiring so much resources from everywhere in the world. Consumption is such a sensitive topic here. The movement that is claiming for the stop of flying for leisure. This is, I think, a good illustration because when the first persons were trying to explain what they wanted to say, which is that, no, yeah, okay, at the global level, maybe flight is not the greatest problem. But the problem is that we developed country that already overconsume and also fly for nothing. It's not really a need, it's leisure. Some want to make it a human right. And they were really trying to problematize this and say that, yes, this is your right, but is it right? When you know how much CO2 it generates, what climate change is doing to other people's countries and life, don't you want to just try and change your lifestyle? And it's been so hard for them uh, to make it through. Basically, what the position was saying was that, oh, but Sweden really is not. We are so few and uh, we are not a big problem. The big problem is basically Chinese and Indian people, middle class, and that there are so many people who want to take the plane from those countries. Because it is so hard to look at yourself and be like, no, maybe it's not right. Maybe I should just quit flying. Just being an individual in, in Sweden, I do overconsume basically all the time. I do buy clothes too much. We throw a third of all the food we buy. We think we have plenty of water. We water our plants with tap water. We're doing good taking care of my trash. Hence, I can fly. I think somehow in the DNA of the Swedes, they are still a poor country. Sweden really was a poor country. Swedes immigrated by millions towards the US. I think the peak was between 1870 and the beginning of the 20th century. And so the country was really poor. And then after that, yes, uh, agricultural revolution, industrialization. Sweden did not participate in World War I or World War II. So the country did not suffer on its flesh, so to say. And after that crisis, and the country started to understood very early that they had to reform, to invest on virtual economy and digitalization, and it has worked really well. All this happened in a quite short period of time. And somehow, I think we have in our day that we deserve that. It is our right and our project as a society to make sure that everyone has access to a car and should eat meat and to consume, basically. We were poor yesterday, now we are there. There is this fantastic expression that goes, Eska unnamel. This is I deserve that. I, I will cherish myself by giving myself this. And I think this is a huge problem. So people really think that this is, they have the right to consume and to pollute. And this is at the core of the paradox, because there is a high consciousness yeah. of climate and environmental mm. issues. Yeah. But there is a very high desire yeah. of consumption. It opens for greenwashing. When you're aware, but don't really go deep down on what's the problem, then it's easy to land in a non-solution. Change the whole range of product that you had at home and change them for ecological versions. That's great, but you still use plastic in tons and 
maybe you use projects that you don't really need? This is really recent to yeah. question growth and to realize that the problem is not what you consume, is that you consume too oh. much. Yes. But challenging this way of life. The green want a change of paradigm. There is really a say that in order to transit toward a sustainable model, we have to have growth. Growth is the motto. And to us, this is like, ma, no, <laughs> no, you don't have to. Maybe it is a problem. Maybe we won't be able to make this transition if we don't change model. But this is really hard to address. I mean, we are a rich country. We've never been that rich. And nevertheless, the people are getting sick. The figures from the social insurance agency were showing that over 30% of all the people getting on sick leave were getting sick because of mental health related diagnoses. Studies have shown for a long time now that over a certain level, the richer you <laughs> get, the less happy you yeah. become. Somehow it lacks meaning. Uh, we see that when it comes to the young people, what they express is they are very anxious uh, because of the climate changes. Because here, apart from the forest fires last year, we can't really say that we have seen the climate change effects. The fact that young people feel this has had an impact on their opinion. People who didn't really want to listen to the other arguments. It's too far away from their hearts. They feel like, oh, poor people on other islands, but it's not close enough to make them realize that something's wrong. But if your daughter is getting sick, literally, because they feel this anxiety or stress, maybe you start to reflect over the lifestyle. People who have everything to be happy, who have a career, still feel unhappy. Yeah. It makes this way of life not so aspirational anymore. You can also see, at least in the larger cities, that more and more Parents are getting down in the amount of worked hour a week. I think it's a great sign. Of course, not a lot of people do that now, but I think it's something has changed. Well, it's a good transition to other subjects. Yeah. Maybe we can speak about gender equality. In Sweden, not only moms, but also dads take paternity leave. The parental leave scheme makes sure that also dads were forced, basically, to take days to be to stay with their children. And today... Yes, more and more dads take the days off. But if you look at the figure, you have basically 480 days that you can share between the two parents. But still, the figures are not good. 75% of the days are still taken by the mom. Basically, if we don't force men to take yet another month, they just don't do it. Sweden is in advance, but there is still... We're not there. No, no, we're not there. That's one big part of the problem because it still has an impact over... Uh, women's salaries and the balance between uh, women and men on the daily life and so on. But it is, it is fantastic that we have this daycare system. And I think in stock, the maximum fee you can pay a month and per child is 120 euros. So it's not like in other countries where you basically have to fight to get a place or you have to find your own system, private nannies or so that are really expensive. And sometimes are just a trap for women because it's so expensive that there is no economical incitement for them to work. So what are your next fights on that subject? I think we, we should individualize totally the parental leave scheme. I think it should be just sh split equal so that dad take those days. And then on the gender equality altogether, we made a big, big step last year when we passed the consent law, which defines what is rape and what is not rape.
Before, it was already stated that when having sex with someone, if you use violence or threaten someone, have sex with like someone who's vulnerable, it was a requirement to qualify the act for rape. It was all wrong. It just showed that we did not understand how violence, sexual violence especially, works. We still have this image that a rape is something that happens when you are coming home and work through a park and someone that you don't know jams on you and forced you into sex and you were screaming, no, 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 no. And it doesn't work like that. When you look at the figures, most of the um, rapes are done by people that you know. Most of the perpetrators are men and they do that to women that they have had a relationship with or still have. So they're partners or ex-partners or daughters, relatives. So that's how the figures look like. Also, when you get raped, research shows that it really is not that common that you actually are able to scream or say no or do anything because one of the strategies that the body has is just to petrify and basically wish and hope that it would come to an end quickly and to reduce the physical injuries. So basically, you know, even if you don't want to have sex, you're not always able to scream and protest and, and, fight. and fight. So the law was basically all wrong. It, it is sick that you should have to prove that you did not want. It should be the other way around. It should be the perpetrator that should, or the person that want to have sex with you, that makes sure that, that you're willing to have sex with them. And so that's basically what's the case now. The law says that if you didn't get a yes, everything else is a no, which makes sense. So this is a great step forward. And we have also seen this year that uh, that people were condemned because of that. So it has totally changed the balance of power. All the Me Too affairs, mm. the consent is difficult to assess mm. because of uh, professional context. If the person next to you is really so much lower than you are in the hierarchy, do they really have the possibility to say no or to be a bit dismissive? Not really. And if you're the boss, no, you can't flirt with anyone, basically. <laughs> Now, moving on to the minorities. Sweden has been praised for its open-door migrant policy, welcoming in 2015 approximately 163,000 people. Tell us more about how Sweden is dealing with minorities and diversity. We have a, a law since 2000 on national minorities. It recognizes five different minorities that have been historically present in Sweden since a long, long time. It's not the people who came here as refugees. The minorities have the right to get their culture and language preserved. We are trying to support them into revitalizing the language and the culture because historically speaking, Sweden has been doing the contrary. So now we're trying to repair and revitalize this inheritance. That's great. And that's also right. The minorities are the Tornadolians, the Swedish-Finnish, Jew, the Roma, and the Sami. Each group has very different needs. The Sami, for instance, are the only indigenous people that we have in Europe, actually. In the north of Sweden, where the historical territory is, of course, You've got all these territorial fights that is really concrete because they've been pushed away from their historical territory. And that's, of, of course, a big problem. But Stockholm is a bit, we don't have this um, territory fight. And since they've been present here for such a long time, they do also have right since February this year to come into contact 
with the municipality services in the old language and they have right to childcare and elderly care in the old language. And that's the same for uh, the Swedish fi- Finnish since 2010 in Stockholm and for the Tornedalian who speak Mänkjälli also since February. And for the, the Finnish part, well, the decision was made in 2010. So we've been building up the whole system and it's running quite well. There are many, so it's not a problem to recruit people for the childcare services or elderly care who also speak Finnish. So I think it's going pretty well. But when it comes to the Sami and the Mänkjälli, it, it is super important we actually do that because contrary to Finns, the Swedish state has really been forcing the Sami and the Tornadolians to basically give up on the language. Swedish Finns that live here can relate. There is another country still speaking the language, but the Sami, they've been forced sometimes to quit the, the village where they come from, the Tornadolians too. They've not been allowed to talk their own language at, at school. They were subject to racism and discrimination. So of course, some people did not even want to say that they were Sami. We have a generation today, which is terrible, who has not heard their grandfather or mothers talk to them in their own language because of shame, because of fear to be subjected to discrimination and violence and stuff like that. So we do really have to build up this service. It is a challenge because today we have very few persons who are able to be to teach the language and also to recruit people to elderly care, childcare. But we really have to work on it because it is a right. And another group that also has huge needs is the Roma people. And I want to be very clear here because usually people don't really understand the magnitude of the thing. We've had Roma in Sweden. I think the first time it was documented was in 1512. So we really talk about people from here who are registered in Sweden, permanent resident. They've been subjected to horrible discrimination and violences since years and years and years. They're the, the biggest minority in Europe. And I think... They've been, and they still are, subjected to discrimination and violence everywhere. And Sweden really has a really dark history when it comes to the Roma. It was forbidden for the Roma people to come in or leave the country between 1914 and 1954, even though we knew that the Roma people had been deported and murdered in concentration and extermination camps during the Holocaust they still could not come here as refugees. While we were, of course, and that's fortunate, welcoming Jews here. But the Roma were still, no, persona non grata in Sweden, which is weird. And no one knows it, basically. In 54, we stopped with that. But still, the Roma minority was really living in very poor conditions in informal settlements. In Stockholm, the last informal settlement was in Tanto, on Södermalm. It closed or it was evacuated in 64. So it it was not so long ago. And what is being done to help their integration? Between the, the minority and the rest of the population, there is a um, a lot of prejudice and misconception, some bizarre ideas of what Roma people are and are not and stuff like that. So basically, we're trying to work on that. It's really hard to access social services for them. Unemployment rates are really high. There are so many things to do on different levels. So the city, we're really working on all those different fields. It's both education, make sure that they're not subjected to discrimination, that they have the right to study in their language, the right to training, tuition, and getting access to work. There are so many aspects. So really, we're, we're working as much to empower the minority itself, but also to educate the majority. We also have the, the Jewish minority, and for them... They came here a long time ago. They're really well integrated. But what we are seeing is that, and what they say also when we meet them, 
is that the anti-Semitism is really starting to be a huge problem again. And why do you think this trend? The political debate is really normalizing verbal violence. Somehow it's been more radicalized against minorities, against immigrants, against Jews. We see that the far right extreme is rising up again and demonstrating in the streets and that it's Is it as a reaction of the, um, the fact that uh, Sweden welcomed a lot of refugees in 2015? I don't know about the dates. That's maybe what's being used. Sweden has, again, a quite dark history when it comes to biological racism. We had an institute for race biology that closed in 76. It is also a society that does embrace human rights and that has been proud of doing so. Somehow, in a situation where we think there is tension or there is no means enough to support everyone, there is no place enough for everyone, we're not, we're not going to make it. I think the far right gets some spot, some window of possibility, and they just take it. So we have to also be less passive as a society and say that we don't want to hear that and that we don't believe in that. Especially because migrations that we are living now are peanuts compared to what we're going to probably have in a few years with climate change and some areas where it's not going to be possible to grow food anymore. No, but of course, and also because it's not only because we have to, because this and this is happening, it's because we believe that people are equal. We don't want to see that kind of extremism. Dot. That's as simple as this. We have to remember that there are international agreements on that. What was the rationale then to switch back to a less open door policy? Well, the whole Europe stopped to do it. So at some point, it was just us in Sweden and Germany who continued to be open and welcome people. For smaller communes, it was maybe hard to make sure that people could get somewhere to sleep and some food. It, it does cost money, of course, to welcome people, and it should. Again, when Germany turned the back, then it became just impossible for the government also to be the only one. There was a huge yeah. U-turn. If you had to make a very quick summary of what you think are the strengths of Sweden on the topics you're working on mm. and the key challenges going forward. Mm. Sweden is really good at working systematically. Like we find a method and then we apply it and we follow the rules. <laughs> and I love that because... When you finally have reached consensus, we're really good at impl implementing. And I think it's a huge strength. The debate is quite mature when it comes to gender equality and, and also climate issues. The key challenges, consumption is really a big pain in the ass to be vulgar, uh, that we have to address. Be brave enough to compromise a little bit of comfort and dream of something different. So that's the. It doesn't mean that we're going to have less good lives. We have to be brave enough to make the intellectual work and accept that we, we're going towards a new lifestyle. And you wear a <laughs> big smile. Mm. What makes you happy working on that? And what, mm. what makes you hopeful? I talked before about FATA, this uh, organization. We worked together with a professor in law, Madeleine Leon Huvud, that sadly passed away last year. And that was a huge loss. That's really thank to her that we could pass this law. But she had a motto that was going like, they go vist. And it's like, of course it's possible. <laughs> What brings me joy is to get in contact with people that just don't give up, that still believe in things and think and know it's going to be better tomorrow. We just have to fight together. What makes me happy is that I do believe for real that it's possible to change. No, I'm, I suck at giving up. 
I'm so bad at this. Your faith is active hope. To Anna Messi, she wrote many books no, on active hope and the fact that what brings you joy is actually not only hope passively, but be engaged. That's exactly this. The resilience and the capacity that life has. I think people are like that. When they fight, just give them a little bit of water, some some love, and it just like explode of life and happiness. We can change structure and everything if we want to. Thank you so much, Thank Cindy. You. Thanks for giving so much time to us. That was a pleasure. Thanks a lot to Cindy Falcave, and thank you all for listening. Subscribe if you want to automatically get the new episodes when they go live. Check out next month. Bye-bye.